The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. Back when I was young, when I was born, when the uh, epidemic of crack cocaine hit America, it plagued my family. And uh, I watched my mom from being a nurse to smoking crack every day. It was bad. My father really wasn't there just as well. And uh, it was just me and my three brothers. It broke my heart. And, and that's when I started like, hating myself for existing. And uh, I just needed a way out, needed a way out from this, this pain and misery that I was feeling inside, this abandonment that I knew took place within myself. So I started smoking weed at the age of 11, drinking at the age of 11. First time I ever hit crack, I was 12 years old. At the age of 16, I got real heavy into snorting cocaine. Uh, my older cousins, they was been doing it, so I just wanted to be like them. And I, I became real addicted real quick. Be honest, that was the only thing that I thought would allow me some relief and uh, allow me the ability to escape the feelings that I was feeling, the thoughts that was going inside my mind. I was so deep into my addiction to where I, I wanted to die. At the age of 26, I got locked up again. I remember praying to God, was like, do something or, or this is it, it's over. In the midst of that, I got custody back of my kids. And I had four kids at the time. Something happened in the inside. Uh, I became ungrateful. So I started getting high again. So when I started getting high, I lost my kids. So when I lost my kids, I carried that failure, that guilt, that shame for like the last four years. I was gonna commit suicide behind it. What is it that's controlling you? You thought you had control of it, but it's taking control. What is it that's growing inside of you and tearing you up and destroying you. All across our nation, and it shows itself right in our city, desires inside of us ensnare us. Maybe even more extremely, they enslave us and produce addictive drives that take control of our lives, destroying us from the inside out. And as a nation and even in our own city, we see these desires creating addiction, specifically in the opioid pandemic, where we have a growing crisis in our city and in our nation. In our, in our area, the law enforcement ref refers to this geographic area where the, at the crossroads of the I-70-81 corridor as the heroin highway because of the level of and the intensity of drug trafficking that goes on in our community, in our region. And it's easy to stick your head in the sand and pretend like this isn't a problem. But if, if you look at the statistics for 2017, just through half of the year, meaning that right now the reporting is only coming in through June, we know that nearly every single day there is a, a serious uh, heroin-related overdose. 159 overdoses through June of this past year. And in June alone, there were 50 uh, overdoses, 16 uh, heroin-related deaths. In just the month of June, there were six alone. You might wonder why was there a spike in the month of June? Uh, and, and it's actually continued now from June into the rest of this year. It's because, um, what they're seeing is that there's an increase in the additives being put into heroin. Maybe you've heard about this on the news or you saw it on social media where they're adding fentanyl or carfentanil or other additives that are, uh, have more extreme impact. So not only are you taking heroin, but you're also getting the additional impact of this other painkiller additive 
That's, that's causing more dramatic effects when people OD. Now, uh, they're even uh, putting Narcan into our public schools. Narcan is the medical response, a shot that they give to treat someone who's having a heroin overdose. And so our law enforcement, our emergency responders realize we need to put these into our public school system. So in high school and middle school, they've got Narcan available so that if a child is ODing, they have an available response. And I hear this and I think we are in trouble. What a mess we've gotten ourselves into. And our instinct is to look at a situation, read about the situations in the nation around us, to read about the issues in our city. Maybe even when you heard Jamal's story and you think that's someone else's problem. But it's not someone else's problem when it's our children, when it's happening in our neighborhoods, when it's happening in our city because their children are our children. It's our neighbor's lives, so it affects our lives. It's our schools, it's our communities, and it's our streets. And beyond it just being our neighbors and our friends, and even impacting our churches, the reality is that every one of us are addicts. And you might react strongly to hearing that. Well, let me, let me dig a little deeper into how people get hooked on opioids. Where does it come from? How does it start? Well, it used to be that it was just a street drug, but now opioids, which are painkillers, are, uh, they, they, there's no boundary that you can say, yeah, it only affects the poor. No, it crosses economic boundaries. It doesn't, it doesn't stop at any racial boundaries. It doesn't, it doesn't stop in one city. No, it's spreading across class and economy and races, and it's in the prisons, and it's in the business centers. Why? Because here, here's where it's starting now. Somebody gets pr a prescription because they had a surgery or they're dealing with some pain issue. Maybe you have a lower back pain and your doctor's gonna give you an opioid, a medicine to, to treat the pain. And so you start taking it very quickly. You and I discover that you can become dependent on that, meaning your body says, I need this to feel better and not to feel pain. Fortunately, when you go back to the doctor, they don't give you a refill. However, if they do give you a refill, your body becomes more dependent on that. And eventually, when you can't get a refill, then people go looking for it on the streets or some other way. And if you can't get that, then you can certainly get heroin. And as a result, heroin is spreading dramatically across our city, our region, and our nation, and not just heroin, the entire opioid issue. And so far, you're like, well, this is very educational, but what does it have to do with me? You and I have a pain problem. And every one of us treat our pain problem with painkillers. It's just that some of us have more socially acceptable, abusive use of our painkillers. Some, you just choose to numb your pain through 24-7 entertainment. You just sit in front of the TV or you just sit on your phone and you don't deal with your pain, you just let your mind be numbed by whatever is in front of you. Maybe you use social media to numb your pain and to remove your personal issues. Others, maybe you turn to food or denying yourself food. Maybe, you, maybe you've turned to hurting yourself. Maybe others, you've turned to sex and the abuse of sex. See, there are certain 
addictive desires, certain painkillers that are more socially acceptable than others. And then some act that out through hurting people. Maybe it's domestic violence or you have a rage issue. And so others you've turned to drugs or other abusive substances. See, and then that's where we start drawing the line. Go, wait, 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 that's destructive while this is acceptable. But we all self-medicate our pain by yielding to our addictive desires. And it's destroying us from within. And once it destroys you and you, or it destroys me, it starts to metastasize and spread. And the same problem has existed for thousands of years. In fact, a pastor named James, he was the brother of Jesus, and he pastored the church in the city of Jerusalem, a church that experienced extraordinary pain. They were being persecuted by those that hated the church. And so people lost their jobs, lost their homes, and some of them lost their lives. And when the threat got so extreme, they began to run for the hills. Quite literally, some of them relocated and began to live in the mountains and in caves. Others relocated to smaller villages and still others traveled further to escape to other cities. A little bit like when you hear about the refugee crisis in the world today, where you have Christians being slaughtered in regions in Syria and Iraq, where those Christians are trying to escape and get away. It was very much like that. And when the pastor named James heard about how his people were running for the hills, and then they would turn their hate and their hurt on each other. He had had enough, and so he wrote them a letter, and he asked that that letter be circulated through all of these scattered churches, and we have access to that letter because it's included in the Bible because we believe that James didn't just write his own ideas. He wrote ideas prompted by God's Spirit inside of him. In James chapter 4, he addresses this issue. James chapter 4, verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? that battle within you? Meaning he goes, isn't there something wrong and broken inside of us that then messes up the way we relate to each other? Don't, doesn't the war inside cause wars among us? Doesn't the fact that we're fighting our own desires create fights among us? You want something, but you don't get it. So it's unmet expectations, unfulfilled appetites. So you kill and you covet but you cannot have what you want, meaning you're empty and unfulfilled. No matter what you get, it doesn't satisfy. So you quarrel and you fight, you do not have because you do not ask God, meaning you've turned the wrong direction. And rather than looking to God to fill your needs, you go taking advantage of and hurting others and trying to find your satisfaction in something that will never satisfy. He says, and when you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He's specifically talking to groups of people that are financially abusing and misusing others. They're ripping people off. They're, they're sending chain emails that trick people into giving money to a lie, right? Like, like the guy, like the prince from Nigeria that recently emailed me and promised me $8 million if I would send him a couple hundred dollars first. He's saying kind of like that. He said, these people that trick you and they lure you in, what they're really trying to do is abuse you to take something from you. But he says, where does that come from? Doesn't it come from the fact that every one of us are driven by desires? that are unmet and unfulfilled because nobody knows how to deal with guilt. Nobody, not law enforcement, not treatment centers, not rehabs, no prison can 
eradicate guilt and shame and those feelings of emptiness and hopelessness. You, you can't solve the issues where someone feels rejected and betrayed or abandoned. And when they start self-medicating by giving into those desires, maybe they're using food or sex or drugs or entertainment or gaming or gambling. We don't know how to deal with the root issue. And what James is saying is what happens is the less satisfied we get, the more this war, this fight that's raging inside of us begins to spread. And instead of us just fighting inside of ourselves, we begin to fight with each other. Isn't it true that most of the time you are more angry toward others because you're angry with yourself? You've done something wrong. And so rather than dealing with your own guilt, you just see the guilt in someone else. And so it creates conflict and wars and battles and strife. And, and what James is saying is, you know what's tearing our country apart? You know what's tearing our community apart? You know what's tearing communities of faith, the church apart? It's each of our own unmet desires where we feed and self-medicate through selfishness to make ourselves feel better because there's a pain inside of every one of us that we don't know how to treat and so no matter how many billions of dollars we pump into law enforcement, no matter how many billions of dollars we pump into rehab centers or treatment centers, no matter how many books we write or self-help resources we make available, no matter how many counselors we put out there, we can't get to the root problem because we don't know how to deal with the pain issue in people's souls. And James doesn't leave you hanging. He doesn't just say, here's the problem, too bad. He offers a solution, a challenge. And the challenge is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it to you and then I'm gonna teach you from James's writing how we live this out. It's this, it's that we have to live new lives. We have to actually become someone other than we are. We have to live a new life. We have to become someone new. See, at the core of it, why is it that someone can go into a sex rehab center or a drug treatment center or go to a therapist to deal with an eating disorder or some other treatment because of something that is tearing them up within and yet most when they come out, go right back to what was destroying them in the first place. And, and, and again, this isn't a they problem, it's a me problem. Why is it that I tend to do the very thing that I know is wrong and is destroying me from within? Why is it that my tendency is to go back to those things? You, you wanna know why? Because most of the time, you and I are trying to use self-control and self-restraint to treat the symptoms. And rehabs and treatment and prison and law enforcement, we're just treating symptoms of a sickness that's deeper within. In essence, we keep pulling off the bad fruit, hoping that it will fix the corrupted roots. And unless we deal with the root problem, we'll continue to get corrupted fruit. And so how do you deal with the root problem? How do you deal with the sickness that's deep within? Well, let's first be honest and let's acknowledge what that sickness is. James, when he's talking about how we have this war raging inside of us, we have these evil desires, what he's referring to is this sickness called sin. Sin is a spiritual sickness. You have your emotions that function at a soul level. You have your way of thinking 
And some of you are bound in the way you think. You have a certain thinking pattern that's wrecking your life. Maybe it's insecurities or fears. Others, you have a physical chemical dependency issue. But at the root, those are all symptoms of a sin sickness. And when we are spiritually sick, there's no amount of drug treatment. There's no amount of incarceration. There's no amount of counseling that is going to fix a spiritual sickness. Spiritual sickness, which is sin, is this thing that we were born with that has metastasized and it has grown deep roots and produced fruit that is destroying us. Sin is a spiritual brokenness that separates us from relationship with God where we go on living a destructive lifestyle, trying to use self-restraint and self-control to manage our brokenness and treat our pain while all along the sin is destroying us from within and we're headed toward an eternity facing forever judgment. That's the bad news. The good news is that God did not leave us that way. While everyone else might be treating symptoms, God treated the sickness. And in fact, that's what James says. He goes, okay, here's the problem. Now, what is the solution? And maybe you're wondering, what is the solution in your life, in your home, in our, on our streets, in our schools, in our city, in our nation, across the globe? James responds, but he gives us more grace. Wherever you see serious problems, wherever you see addictions taking control, there is a greater wave of grace from God to deal with the pain and the hurts. He says he gives more grace in response to whatever you are facing. Grace is the word that biblical authors would use that even Jesus used to refer to God's wealth the riches of God available to you and to me. So when we talk about grace, what we're saying is that God pours out his goodness, his love, his forgiveness, his hope, his healing power. And so the more you're struggling, the more wealth of God's grace he's pouring into your life. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, those who arrogantly go willingly in wrong directions, but gives grace to the humble, to those that are broken, to those that recognize their spiritual sickness and their soul disease, to those that are looking at their life going, I am broken and messed up. That's the humble. God gives more grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. What was God's response? How did God show us his grace? He became one of us. Jesus Christ came to earth for the express purpose of taking on our sin sickness. He became the treatment. In essence, you could say that he became not just the inoculation, but he took the sickness on himself. He, he absorbed the full blow of sin's judgment. All of the eternal death sentence that every one of us deserved was put on Jesus so that when he died, he died in your place. He died in my place. He absorbed my punishment and your punishment. He absorbed everything we deserve because of our sin. He took on himself so that he died once for all, but he didn't stay dead. He rose supernaturally, miraculously, and physically from the dead. And in his resurrection, he triumphed over the power of sin. He conquered death and he gave us victory over eternal judgment so that anyone who believes in Jesus by faith is forgiven of their sins. The chains that have bound us are broken. 
the, the vines of sin that have strangled us are cut and no longer alive inside of us. You have been forgiven and freed from sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you believe in Jesus by faith, God's spirit, which is eternal and invisible, enters into your spirit and makes you truly alive. And that's not just what I'm saying. That's what the author James is saying. That's what Jesus taught. And we can even hear it in Jamal's story. So check this out. I made a constant decision to say, all right, God, like, now that I see that I keep getting rejected by the world, so there gotta be something more and better that you have for me. So I made a constant decision to go back to the same rehab that I went to, and that was um, December the 13th, 2016, and I haven't looked back since. My relationship with Jesus Christ is the relationship I always needed in my life because, like, all my sins, made me fall short of his glory. The evilness I'd done to myself and others, he has forgiven me. What was capable to destroy me, God did not let it happen because there was something in me that needed to be discovered, and I had to discover that. So as I searched God, he started showing me destiny. I believe I've been saved to serve. God ordained me to bore the disease of addiction and help other addicts to, be, to find some hope. Now I'm starting to live in my purpose. I have meaning to life. I'm a blessed man that lived two lives in one lifetime. I survived active addiction, now I'm living recovery. And I'm living abundant life in Christ. Look, it takes a lot of vulnerability for someone to share their pain story and how they use painkillers to treat that pain. We are so grateful for Jamal and your courage to come and to share your story with us and where, you had, where those addictions have brought you to the end of yourself and at the end of yourself, you found Jesus and with finding Jesus, you found hope and healing. And I, I want all of you to know this. We are not taking some quick fix easy spiritual response to the deep and difficult issues of addictions. This isn't some you know, unscientific, un, you know, non-researched approach. I'm not trying to be ignorant or superficial as if you know, just throwing, you know, throwing Jesus out there is gonna make everything all better. So, so what do I mean by this? Look, if every addictive desire that's, drive, that's living and driving me is a symptom of sin, then what we're saying is we first have to treat the sin sickness before we treat the symptoms. Believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior is not your only step, but it is your first step. First, treating the spiritual sickness, the spiritual brokenness inside that has produced symptoms in your desires, symptoms in your emotions, symptoms in your thinking, symptoms in your chemical dependencies. But once we treat the spiritual sickness, then and only then can we begin to treat the other issues. See, first deal with your relationship with God, then deal with the fear, then deal with the insecurity, then deal with the addictions, then deal with those wrongly placed and disordered sexual desires. See, if we just try to treat the desires, we were always only pulling the corrupted fruit off the tree and the next season, more fruits get to grow. And this is why people fall into chronic broken behaviors because they're never cutting the roots. They're never treating the sickness. They're only always dealing with the fruit. And the only way to deal with the roots is through faith in Jesus Christ, which changes everything 
about our lives. And so we want to encourage you and challenge you in how you can begin to live this new life. In fact, the the apostle Paul, a man who knew firsthand what it was like to be driven by wrong desires, a guy who spent many years or some time trying to kill Christians and actually killing Christians. He was a religious terrorist and his name was Saul, but on his way to murder more Christians, he had an encounter with God and he actually became a Christian. And so he changed his name from Saul to Paul to reflect the change in his life. One of the churches that he helped start was in the city of Corinth, and he wrote two letters to them that are recorded in the Bible. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he writes this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. What, what was this Saul who became Paul trying to say to us as we imagine what it's like to live a new life. He was saying this, first you have to become new. The picture that he wants to give us or that he uses in, in his explanation when he says the old things are passed away, behold, all things are new. The word he uses in the Greek is this. It basically translates metamorphosis. Now, some of you science guys, you get this, right? Like that word is the word you use to describe what happens when a caterpillar goes into the cocoon, goes through a metamorphosis and emerges a caterpillar or for you guys, a moth. All right, so ladies, you get to be a butterfly. Guys, you get to be a moth. I don't know. Here's the deal, right? You go through, the, 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 they go through this change, this metamorphosis. And Paul is saying that if when you enter Christ through the cocoon of faith, you are changed and you are not what you once were. You become new. You are not what you once were. When you believe in Jesus by faith, your identity is changed. Your past is forgiven. Some of you have dragged your past into the present and it defines you and it confines you because you believe that because you lied in the past, today you're a liar. Because you cheated in the past, today you're a cheater. And that would be true if you had not entered the cocoon of faith where you are transformed and you have been made new. You are not what you were. You are new in Jesus Christ because you are in Christ, right? That's what, the, that's what Paul said. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So the first question is, are you in Christ? Have you by faith put your life in Christ? You are not living in your past. You are not living in regret. You are not in shame. You are not in guilt. You are not in your desires. You are placed in Christ where you are changed. Now, it doesn't matter how much you try to act different. A caterpillar can climb up to the highest branches of a tree and jump off. And if it has not been changed through the cocoon, through the process of metamorphosis, it will not fly, it will go splat. The only way for a caterpillar to fly is if it is changed through the cocoon and when it, climb, when it goes up to the branches and jumps off, it has wings that cause it to soar. In your life, you can try to act like you believe in Jesus. You can go to church, you can say prayers, you can do religious things, but if you have not allowed Jesus to come in your life by allowing his spirit to enter your spirit and change you, 
You crawl around like a caterpillar trying to act like a butterfly. But when you believe in Jesus by faith, you don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. You simply receive this new life that God gives you. In fact, that's James's point. When James is writing, he says this, but he gives more grace That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now you and I, when we hear that, we think it's an equation. Like there's some formula. When I mess up, God gives me equal portion of forgiveness, grace to my failures, to my sins. But I want you to know this. God doesn't give you an equal portion. He gives you an exponentially greater portion of grace to overwhelm your sin. When God sees our sin, so we might say like, I have this one sin, God heaps his love on us. God heaps forgiveness on us. God heaps his grace on us. And if there is anything proportional to God's grace, it is inversely proportional. What I mean by that is, The more grace we receive from God, the less we want to sin. The more I receive God's love, the less I want to love the things that destroy me. And so how does this look? How do we experience this in our lives? Well, James continues to write and explain how we can respond. How do I change my want to? Did you catch that? Most of us feel like we have to do the right thing. And so we, we try to exercise self-restraint or self-control to protect us from the desires that are warring within us. But James is saying that God will change your want to. How? How do you begin to live this new life? He goes like this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your, your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. And that doesn't sound like a great word of encouragement. So let me say it this way, but it's saying the exact same thing. We need to cooperate with God in resisting evil. Let me dig a little deeper here. Because every one of us have this sickness called sin inside of us, and that sickness metastasizes and spreads to all kinds of symptoms. Or you could say you have roots growing inside of you that are producing all kinds of corrupted fruit. As a result, sin corrupts our desires. Let me be really clear here. Every desire you and I have has been corrupted by sin. So you have a natural instinctive desire to eat. But because of sin, you will naturally either overeat or starve yourself as a punishment so you look better. See, sin will push you to the extremes. God gave you a natural gift of human sexuality. It's a beautiful gift, best place in a marriage relationship, but then we abuse it and we pervert it because sin will push you to the extremes. It will cause you to be driven by lust and unhealthy desires that destroy. And so we have to recognize every desire is corrupted by sin. And so I have to be willing to cooperate with God by resisting evil, recognizing that God wants to protect me from this sin drive that could wreck my life and has wrecked my life. So I wanna give you a couple word pictures to help you capture this in your thinking. Imagine yourself like a cup and sin has been poured into it. And in fact, maybe I'll use the picture of a funnel. Imagine your life is like a funnel, but it's corked up, all right? And so what's, what's being poured in is, I don't know, recently I emptied the oil in my lawnmower and I had to change it out. And when you pour it out, it is disgusting. This thick, dark, 
nasty substance. And so imagine I took a glass out of my cabinet and I shouldn't do this, but I poured the uh, lawnmower oil into this glass, right? And then I brought it in and I emptied out the oil. What would still be in the cup? That's right, the residue of that oil. So here's the deal, you are new with residue. You like that? That was good, I, I wrote that one myself, I made that up. Um, here's another way of looking at it, you do landscaping and you go out with your clippers and you see poison ivy and you got poison ivy wrapping around one of your nice decorative trees and so what do you do? You're not gonna go pulling the whole vine down because that's impossible. You know what you do? You cut it off at the base and then you cut off another piece and you separate about a foot and a half so that it can't reconnect, right? So the poison ivy is dead but still attached. And it doesn't immediately dry up. In fact, it will be, you'll see it for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then the leaves will go limp. And, but man, don't go touching that. You'll still get poison ivy. What you do is you wait till the next season. Now it's dead with no poison in it, and you could pull it off. Some of us still have poison ivy wrapped around us with poison still in it, even though that sin is dead. And we have to be willing to cooperate with God by resisting evil. Agree with God that our desires are broken and corrupted. And so we have to cooperate by not constantly giving in to this dead thing that is still attached to us. And so what do we do? We allow obedience to Christ when we resist evil to begin to flush the funnel. It begins to pour, God's love washes through the funnel and it washes out the residue. So the more you yield to God and resist evil, the more you are washed and cleansed of the desires that were destroying you. So every time you say no to what's wrong, that sin in you is weakened and purged. Every time you give in, it's strengthened and given fresh life. And so we have to develop a pattern where we we resist evil by agreeing that God's best is what we need to pursue. And that's what James challenges us with. Here it is. He gives us this kind of final challenge. Submit yourselves then to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. What is he saying? He goes, not only do we need to cooperate with God by resisting evil, but we need to cooperate with God by trusting God's best. And he gives us this word, submit. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but I don't like the idea of submitting to anyone. I'm a little bit of a rebel. And so I wanna do things my way. I like my ideas better than your ideas. And so as a result, when we drive, you and I, when we're getting on the highway, we have a tendency to go where I'm going is more important than where you're going, even if you're driving a tractor trailer. And so I'm gonna punch the gas and I am gonna get in front of them because I have to get somewhere. You know what that's not called? Yielding. Yielding is the idea of slowing down and letting the person in the lane have the lane. They have the right of way. And then I pull in behind them. James is saying, submit, yield to God, give him the right of way. It's his way, not my way. And so I say, God, you go, I'll follow. You lead my desires, I'll submit to your desires. Here's the deal. If you are coming to God and you are saying, God, you can have everything in my life except this. I won't let you change this part of who I am. I won't let you change this desire or this drive or this part of my identity. Then you are not giving God the right of way. 
You're saying, no, God, I got this one. But what that's a reflection of is that you are not in Christ. So when I'm in Christ, I give God the right of way and I allow him to take control of my desires. And as a result, I trust that what God is doing in me is the best for me. Here's the deal. Because sin has fractured my desires, I am going to believe that what I want is best. But when I believe in Jesus by faith, I trust that even though I think this is best, I'm gonna obey God because I trust that he knows what's best and I'm gonna yield to him. And here's what James says happens. When you yield to God and you trust that his best is actually best, he lifts you up. You've been wallowing in self-pity. You've been, you've been living in the muddy filth of life. You've been brought down low and beat up and battered by your own addictions and maybe by the desires and the abuse of others. And your life has been somewhere down in the mud. But James says that when we resist evil and we submit to God, he lifts us up. He, like Jamal said, he gives us a future. He gives us freedom. He breaks us free from those desires and drives that once controlled us. He transforms us. He gives us new life a new identity so that we can walk around. We don't have to carry the shame, the guilt of the past. We say, I am made new to live new. I am not what I once was. I am who Jesus says I am. And I am both forgiven and freed and I'm gonna live like it. Yeah. So what is your response right now? Some of you, you're still a caterpillar crawling around in the mud. And it's time for you to be changed. It's time for God to give you wings to soar by faith. For others of you, you believe in Jesus. You're just not living like it. So I want to encourage you all of you, would you just close your eyes right now? I'm going to invite you to respond. For some of you, you know that when you came in, when you're with, you're with us online and, and you're, you're, when you heard me speak about the fact that we're, we're always treating symptoms, but never the sickness, you're like, you know what? That's my life. And I need to treat this sickness a spiritual sickness that can only be treated through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's where you're at. And you're ready to say yes to Jesus, not as a quick fix, but as your only hope to treat the spiritual sickness. And you're ready to make that decision to say, God, forgive me of my sin. Give me new life by your spirit entering my spirit. If that's you today, I wanna encourage you, would you just raise your hand if you're with us at the Wilson campus? If you're with us online, would you let us know right now? Would you just raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me. Raise it real high so so I can see you. I just wanna, because I'm gonna pray with you in just a moment. If that's you, would you just say, yep, that's where I'm at right now. For those of you that are raising your hand, would you just allow me a moment to pray over you? Jesus, I wanna say thank you. Thank you that you came to earth to pick a fight with our, our, our enemy. You took on our sickness and you were willing to absorb our judgment so that each one of these that have raised their hand and said, yes, Jesus, I believe in you right now. God, would you enter their spirit? Would you give them new life? Would you transform them? Would you both forgive them and free them? We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.